My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Today, my guest is none other than Simon Ridgway. Now, I met Simon earlier this year at a bar outside of a mining conference. We were introduced through a mutual friend, uh, and Simon was introduced to me as a prospector who had spent many years working up in the Yukon and knew the area very, very well. Now, we chatted a little bit about exploration, but Simon had to head off to a dinner, and it wasn't until after he left that our mutual friend told me that Simon was actually one of the founders and the chairman of Fortuna Silver, a billion-dollar mining company based here in Vancouver with assets all over Latin America. The next night, I actually bumped into Simon again, this time at another bar, and this probably tells you something about our drinking habits here in Vancouver, and we ended up uh, chatting in a bit more detail. Simon's early life reads very much like a Jack London novel, so if you've ever read Call of the Wild or White Fang, you know what I'm talking about. Simon left school at the age of 15 and basically decided he wanted to travel the world. He ended up sailing from his home in the UK to North America in the 1970s. Once he was there, he made his way to the West Coast. He hitchhiked then up to the Yukon. And when he landed in the Yukon, he decided he needed a job and got hired as what he would call a bush rat, which is essentially a manual laborer in the field working on mineral exploration projects. And he did this for the next few years to fund his winter travels down through Latin America and the Caribbean. And this led to a whole series of events that uh, started with Simon becoming a part-time poker player in Dawson City and then eventually a successful prospector and a very successful mining CEO and chairman. Now, the work Simon does is prodigious. You know, in addition to being the chairman of Fortuna Silver, he is the chairman of Medgold Resources. He is the chairman of Radius Gold, the chairman of Volcanic Gold Mines, and the chairman of Crops, Inc., along with a lot of other interesting things that we get into in depth in this conversation. When I was talking to Simon, what really struck me is that he seems to be someone who spent his life doing exactly the thing he was meant to be doing. Simon is a passionate entrepreneur. He is a passionate explorer. And I can say with full honesty, he is truly one of the most interesting people I've ever had the opportunity to meet in the mining industry or otherwise. So if you are an investor and you are interested in better understanding the early exploration stage of the mining industry and how these projects get put together, how they work, this is the episode to be listening to. Or if you're already in the industry and you are thinking about or looking to make an entrepreneurial move, especially if it's in exploration, especially if you are looking at staking your own ground, your own projects, this is the episode to be listening to. I had a great time talking to Simon today. I think everyone will get a lot out of listening to this. So without further ado, let me please introduce Simon Ridgway. All right, Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the interview. So thank you for coming in today. Are you, you don't typically live in Vancouver. You live a few hours north of here. Are you in town for the conference today? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in town Tuesday to Thursday every week in the summertime. I have a place at Pemberton, which is, a, you know, I can get a lot more work done there because a lot of my work is yeah. sort of research-based and to talk to the people on the phone. When I come to town, I get more caught up in Fair things enough. like this. You're not constantly getting dragged into interviews and coffee no, chats when you're no, up in Pemberton, I suppose. No. Okay, so... In leading up to this, I was, I was thinking about how we met, and it was probably, again, at a conference. So for those listeners uh, who aren't here, the Sprott conference is going on right now. And when Simon and I met, it was about uh, last January, I think, at the Vancouver Roundup. And we were at one of the bars here in Vancouver uh, and with a mutual friend, and we started chatting a bit about your background and, right. and what you did. And 
when I started this podcast uh, three or four months ago, I knew you were one of the first people I really wanted to have on here because when I first got into the mining industry, I started engineering school. I was 17 and I basically had all these dreams of adventure and grandeur and traveling the world and doing all these things. And it sounded a lot like that's what you did and you... Yeah, in my earlier days. I mean, I was, you know, from, I was sort of 18 years old in in the in the mid sixties, and it was in those days everybody yeah. was uh, packing a bag and hitting the road and <laughs> drifting around Eden Europe and different parts of the world. So I kind of got caught up in that in that travel um, addiction, we'll call it. And so I spent the, the next decade kind of on the road, different parts of the world. I'd like to dig into that a little bit, but first I I want to read a a shortened list from what I found on the internet of what of what you're doing now. So. Taking this, you are the chairman of Fortuna Silver, the chairman of Med Gold Resources, the chairman of Radius Gold, the chairman of Volcanic Gold Mines, the chairman of Crops Incorporated, and on the board of Rackla Metals. It sounds busy, doesn't it? <laughs> and maybe a, I'm a, a little lot of overloaded, but you know, most of those most of those positions don't take a, a very active role. You know, mm-hmm. Jorge Ganosa and the team run Fortuna. I have little involvement um, on on the running of the management of the company. You, what I did do, correct, with Fortuna is back some very, very good people who've done a fantastic, fantastic job with the company. And I stay involved because I really enjoy working with them. Yep. And they keep me involved because I think I have a little bit of input on, on certain things, you know, acquisitions, um, the time to finance and, and negotiating deals with uh, such as the Lindero with Jorge yes. um, and, or the San Jose uh, mine in Mexico. So... But it doesn't take it on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't take very much of my time. Well, I mean, what's interesting I found, particularly upon learning this, is none of these things were how I was introduced to you. Uh, when I met you, our, our mutual friend told me, this is Simon. He's a prospector. Yeah, and that's, that's how I got involved in the industry. I mean, in, you know, in, <clears throat> in my traveling days, going back to that again, um, I always wanted to go to the Yukon Territory, so some of my travels took me up there. I uh, wanted to see that, that, that part of the world. But on arriving there, you know, you got a place that's three times the size of England, which is where I was born, mm-hmm. and no roads. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, how do you get to see this place? So when, when was this? 1975. So you were backpacking around... You find your way to Whitehorse, I assume? Yeah, I was backpacking around, and I did a bunch of sailing, so I sailed across the Atlantic and got to the... Got, and that's how I first got to the Americas. I kind of hitched a ride on a yacht with some other people, got to the Americas, and then traveled across to the West Coast, uh, got to Vancouver, and decided I was going to hitch a ride on a yacht going south. As it turns out, not many of the yachts in Vancouver go anywhere. They just kind of sail around the harbor, yeah. so... While I was there, I began a bit of research, and it suddenly my childhood desire to see two places, one of which Patagonia and the other was the Yukon. I must have been a desolate childhood, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, there was a so I saw ferries going north, and I took a ferry up to Port Hardy and hitched up to the Yukon. So, what what was it that drew you to the Yukon in particular? Just from I knew from you know from my childhood I wanted to go there, and it, and seeing it on the maps and being that proximal to it, I said, well, let's just let's go there. I can't get a ride on a yacht. Going back south again into the warm climate, so and this would have been this would have been the spring one, spring of seventy five or seventy six. I'm not sure. So to place us, how how old were you at that time? Um, twenty two, twenty three years yeah. old. Okay, so so when you get there, you kind of mentioned you fell into prospecting. Um, what can you define what a prospector is and sort of how that's differentiated from a, a typical geologist? You're right. Well, when I first got there, I, I fell into working in the bush as, as a bush laboring, you know, yep. line cutting, claim staking. And, and I didn't really didn't know anything about mining until then. So and, and I did that for quite a few years. And then I would work on other people's projects and work with geologists and, and kind of pick their brain a little bit and learn the basics of geology. And and then became a prospector, but I was more of a researcher. Like what I found out was that every spring I'd come back to the Yukon because I was so. Let me wind back a little bit. I would work several months in the Yukon in the field doing that bush laboring work, mm-hmm. and then head to Latin America to enjoy the beaches and the and the other parts of Latin America <laughs> in the winter time. And every spring I'd come back through Vancouver and head up to the Yukon again. 
as I learned more about the mining market, I learned that, you know, learning in Vancouver what the market was trending in, what, what the market was looking for. So these are the different commodities the different that are commodities popular at, at that the time. time. One year it'd be molybdenum, next year it'd be tungsten, what, what, what the market favoured. It wasn't all gold in those days. Mm-hmm. So I go to the Yukon, sit in the mining recorder's office and do the research and come up with targets to go and prospect. Mm-hmm. But I would really target prospects that were already established. I would re-establish the results of people that got, you know, try to put A and B together and, and use employ geos to help me put it together and then come back to Vancouver and vend it to public companies in Vancouver. Okay, so when you say the prospect's already established, that means there's been some work that's been done on this claim. That's right. Whether it, that's soil sampling or hand samples or maybe some drilling. Or maybe some drilling. Yeah. I mean, in Canada, you know, the Canadian system is probably the best in the world, I think. Companies that... That to, to retain the ground you have, you have to work on the, conce- the, the concession, yep. the claims, every year, do a certain amount of work. And spend and a certain amount of capital Spend a certain amount of capital. And everybody files that work with the government. The, works, the, the, the results of your work stay private with the government until you drop the ground. And then that information becomes public information. Yes. Once our claims becomes open. So, you know, you've got 100 years of people working in the Yukon yep. doing professional work recording the work and actually record here we record the truth what we do is what we file mm-hmm. you know there's no bullshit involved we don't hide results so so you can research all that data and put the picture together so people could be doing work looking for copper but they would assay for other elements right and those elements that data would be recorded in the mining recorder's office and you could record it or research it on microfish. In those days, it was microfish. Now it's a lot easier. So do you actually go into into the geological survey? I would, or one say, of I the would spend, yeah. when I wasn't so, as the time went on in the Yukon, I initially began doing all that bush work. And then, I can get, jump into this a bit later, but then I began kind of playing poker for a living up there in, okay. a, in an old casino <laughs> called Diamond Tooth Girders. And was that so, in in Whitehorse? That or? was in Dawson City. In Dawson, okay. So I would spend my evenings in the, at the poker table in Diamond Tooth Girders, but I spent all my days sitting in the mining recorder's office going through microfish till I, till I couldn't see, and I'd have to yeah. go back and sleep again before the next poker game, basically. <laughs> okay. So so I would I would do both. So the, 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 the prospecting really interested me just because it was a way to get out in the field. You were in control of your own destiny. It was high risk, high reward, as mm-hmm. the poker was. Um, but mostly you were in control of your own destiny, right? So I, I would stake, I would do the research, pass through Vancouver, find out what the market was looking for, go to the Yukon, do the research, find targets that I think would be attractive to the market, and then vend them to public companies in Vancouver. And I would get shares in the company and cash payments um, from the public companies to and, and never go work on my ground. Yeah, so let's take a moment and explain to people what that means. So to vend a project means you have acquired the claims of that project, either in your personal name or the name of a company, a private company that you control. Correct. And to vend that means you essentially sell it to generally a publicly traded company here in Vancouver yes. in, in exchange for, the, be it cash or stocks or some combination of right. the two. And right, and it wouldn't be a sale, it would be an option. Right, Right. Okay. So I would option it to them whereby they make certain cash and share payments on signing, a bit like the project generators do yeah. now, except I would be a, I was a private project generator. Yes. And I did that for several years. Okay, so what instigated the transition from you, you know, cutting lines in the bush and hauling bags of rocks up hills to realizing you could basically be doing this yourself and getting the getting the ground was there like an aha moment there where you were like you know this isn't so hard or did someone sort of take you under their wing how did that no, happen? actually it happened because you know as i said i started playing poker in the yukon and then and then that became more and more of a my of my income became came from that and then I went on a project with a guy that I worked for, Molly Barker, a very good friend and a person I've worked for for several years. Um, myself, Molly, and another um, guy that worked with me called Mike Woods went on to a, went into a project to do some staking for a client that Molly had. Okay. We couldn't stake because we got snowed out. So we were stuck in the truck for three or four hours waiting because the helicopters with the post couldn't get in. So okay. we played poker. And it was, a, it was kind of a friendly poker game, but at the end of the game, it got a bit carried away. Molly, the guy I worked for, owed me $1,500 from the poker game. <laughs> okay. I, was I going to claim that money back from him? When I, got, I don't really know, but it was a debt that was there. So Molly came to me one day and said, 
I've got this block of ground in the Wheaton Valley, which is the southern part of Yukon Territory. Rather than pay the money I owe you, why don't you take 50% of that block of ground and we'll try to option it up to somebody? Block of claims, right? Yep. There was a, it was a big block, a large block of claims. So I accepted that and then came to, came to Vancouver that fall and we optioned the ground off to a company called Omni Resources and we received $25,000 on signing and, and, and 50,000 shares, which became worth $50,000. So suddenly I parlayed that $1,500 debt into like $35,000. I went, so that mm. was the aha moment. It was, that, that, was the aha, <laughs> that was actually the aha that moment. That this is yeah. a potentially a more lucrative track than just poker. The, was poker. And let me go back a little bit. You know, everybody thinks that because of that I'm a wizard poker player. But, you know, to win a, a bit of money in the back of a truck from the guy yeah. you work for doesn't actually mean you play poker that well. It yeah. means you got a few lucky cards at that time. I did play poker professionally for four or five years after that in different parts of the world while I was doing this prospecting and researching. Yeah. Um, so this be like the winter months when yeah, you're not out? Yeah, the winter months. The, is, yeah. if I, you know, I'll go to Aruba in the Caribbean or Antigua, different, different yep. islands there and play poker down there. Huh. Yeah. So do you find, you, you notice a lot of people actually in the mining space that are at least active uh, amateur poker players. And it seems, seems to, to attract be, There seems to type. be quite a field. It, it's, a, it's a high risk, playing poker is a high risk way to make a living or, or entertainment yeah. but it but it's certainly it's more skill based than luck based yes but it is high risk and the industry that we're in it's not exploration is very very similar right yeah that even the most skilled people i mean they might win over the course of their career but they can kind of lose any given hand on any given yeah. hand and it's mm-hmm. the same with poker you can you can win it's a long term i mean most poker players win over a long period of time but any one night they can lose a lot of money because the cards dictate yeah, the end of the day, who wins at a certain at a certain period? So, what was Dawson like in the nineteen seventies? Dawson was a huge amount of fun in, <laughs> in, in the in the in the initial gold running the gold price. Right, yeah. I mean, gold in from seventy five was trading at that low price, and then from seventy five to eighty two, it popped way way up, and and the place became a, a very very fun town. It's I mean I I don't I'm not saying it isn't still. It, I haven't been there for quite a while now, mm-hmm. but it was a it was just a great place. And some of the best people, most straightforward, honest people I've met in my life are from still from the Yukon Territory. Yeah. Do you do you spend much? Oh, actually, let me take that back a step. How long did you spend in the Yukon, or how many years did you go? I back lived there? in the Yukon from 1975. I'm ill. Okay, let me rephrase that. I summered in the Yukon <laughs> from 1975 until I moved to Venezuela in 1992. 1992. So you know, 17 years. Okay, and. Presumably over that time, you staked many land packages. You've flipped yeah. them to many companies. Flipped them to many companies. And I think the change came in the flow-through days. I, would, I was getting very disillusioned with the... The more I learned about the industry the more and, and, and how people made money in it and, and the work that people did and what was right and what was wrong, in the flow-through years, I would option... You know, I believed in the research I did and the prospects I vended. Yeah. And I watched companies do shitty work on the projects I vended to them. So I began to think... I also began playing poker in Vancouver at that time as well. Yeah. So, I was, you know, I would meet with brokers and people that ran companies in Vancouver in the, in, the, in the poker scene here and began to realize that, you know, even though I haven't got much of an educational background, I was kind of a, you know... I left school at 15 in, in, in the lowest division in the English school system. Yeah. I began to realize that I wasn't that stupid. The, yeah. the people so you were kind of disenchanted with The brokers this. That, were, that were in the industry, the people running companies were just not... not I wouldn't say they weren't that smart. They just weren't that much smarter than me. Right. So if they could do it, I could do it. So, yeah, that kind of leads me to my next question. When did you... When and how did you transition from, you know, running these little private companies and getting your claims and flipping them to other people or vending them to other people to actually taking a leadership role in a public... Uh, mining or exploration company. I, I probably, by, probably by 1992, like uh, I came up with this idea. There were, there were just you know, it's all based upon the more the more I read, the more I enjoyed the industry, the mining, the exploration, the high risk of it, and the and the and the um, the fact that there's that much, there's so much data you can research in the, in Canada to come up with ideas. Yeah. So I, I came up with ideas, and one winter I went down to the play poker in. I spent the winter in Antigua. And I took suitcases of data down there with me and, 
and I rented an apartment and I had the maps all over the floor and coming up with these ideas to stake a whole bunch of claims in an area called the Tombstone Mountains of Yukon Territory. Yep. Um, and this was kind of before that whole, um, you know, there was low-grade tombstone sweet intrusives became mm-hmm. came known to have these gold deposits. But I came up with a concept there that I would that I would um, stake a three or four different blocks of ground, bring bring the projects, you know, with, from this research in Antigua, and then come back to Vancouver, vend one of the projects to one of the majors, and then keep the others in a private company and take it public. Because I thought, if you right. know, I could so do a better that, job than the companies that, yeah. that, that, were, that were working on my ground in the Yukon. And so vending that first project to a major paid for you to do the rest? To, to the, do the rest of the staking. Yeah. So, right. And is that what happened? That's what happened. Yeah. I, I formed a company called Tombstone Explorations, which is a... I found it was a very difficult name to take public it's just because, <laughs> because, because uh, it's, not a, it's not a favorite. T- tombstone Rock is pretty barren, really. Yeah. But I love the name. Yeah. Anyway, so I took Tombstone public in, in 1991, and uh, it was a very, very tough market. And there was an Alaskan plasm miner, quite a wealthy guy and still a friend of mine called Vern Hall, who agreed to um, purchase 50% of the IPO, in other words, 50% of the public stock, in the IPO, yeah. if I would go to live in Venezuela upon the listing of the company, because it was a tough market, the, okay. the, the, I, I could not get I could not get the support in the Vancouver. I mean, a Yukon prospect, a gambler coming down with twigs in his hair, <laughs> trying to get listed <laughs> right. in the back market wasn't happening. So Vern buying fifty percent of the initial um, listing company, if I moved to Venezuela and. And he had a um, he was an alluvial miner, and he had some friends living in Venezuela. Okay. So he the deal was that any alluvial prospects I found down there would go to his private company. Right. Any hard rock prospects I found would stay with the public company. Tombstone. In the Tombstone. Yeah. Okay. So, so he the, wanted your expertise down there. He wanted my expertise. And you down so there. you couldn't just go down there for a few months at a time. You had no, to, he wanted, you had to he had be a, there. He had to be there. Okay. Right. Yeah. So the company was listed, I think, in. In November '91, and I moved to Venezuela the next day. The next day, all right. So and, you... yeah. So I mean, basically, we met down there, and we be, we did a big tour of the of the whole ni- uh, kilometer eighty-eight region, and I I moved down and lived from in in Venezuela from from '91 to '94. And you'd had a lot of experience, at least traveling around Latin America. Yeah. At that point. So I, you I, spoke Spanish. I presumably. spoke some Spanish. Yeah. yeah. So not, should... not very much, but some enough to enough to get by. Yeah. yeah. And you showed up in Venezuela. What was, I mean, what's Venezuela like in the 90s? It's not somewhere you'd want to be today. No, it was, then it it was the place to be. I mean, it was, you know, Colombia was not the place to be then. Yeah, of course. Venezuela was. And that's been a complete switch in Mm -hmm. that. I mean, it was a a great place. I met a lot of, I met a lot of people down there. I've got three children from a Venezuelan wife that that live with me here in Canada. Um, It was, and I've got some very good friends that still work with me. Mario Shortlander, who was a partner in most of my companies, many of my companies, okay. who started Fortuna with me. Myself, Jorge Ganosa, and Mario started Fortuna. Um, so it's, it's still close to my heart. It's not a place I would go back to at the moment or probably ever to do mineral exploration. Fair enough, um, yeah. But it, but it was a good place. It was a good place then. There was a lot of gold there. What did and you I have? got very lucky because I went down there in 91 and I struggled for a couple of years. I mean, I enjoyed prospecting, breaking rocks and seeing alteration and there is all saprolite. Yeah. Right? I mean, you just, uh, yeah, you've got, yeah. it's just. And I presume the data that you'd become accustomed to sifting through in Canada was not available it in, was not in available. Venezuela. So it's a very different style than you're used to. It's a very st- different style than I was so used to. What, we what, were chasing, you know, people that were washing gold from saprolite and looking at, at those areas. Right. So did you find any hard rock assets to put we, into two We zone? acquired some hard rock assets. I mean, one of the, one, one, Vern had a, another, a, um, a friend of his, a guy called Eric Raguth, who's quite a, is a bit of a legend himself in, in the industry since. I mean, he was a placer miner in the Yukon, and he'd gone to live in Venezuela, and he'd been down there a decade. So that's what got Vern interested in going down there and, and wanted to put, put me down. So I had somebody that, to take me around and show me the better places to be. But basically what happened is two years later, I was still, you know, I was living down there, I'd fly back every quarter to Vancouver to follow quarterly reports and, mm-hmm. and get that done and then go back to Venezuela again. But then a year and a half later, Robert Friedland made Venezuela the place to be. Right, with Vengold, right? With Vengold. Yeah, so yeah. everybody rushed to Venezuela 
And I thought it was a good time to sell up and move on. Yeah. So did you? You sold all your? I, yeah, yeah. I mean, the company got. I helped the company get financed. We raised, uh, you know, forty, fifty million dollars. I put some people, some good skilled people, came in to run it. Rick Clark, who was a, a who was a, not very well known in the industry, came in as president, and I stepped back as kind of the infield operator. The share price went way up. The company was financed, and I cashed in. Sounds good. I want to tell you, and all of a sudden I found myself running a, a team of 30 or 40 people in the Venezuelan field, and I said, I don't want to be here. Well, it's not yeah. my skill set. I wanted to ask you about that, because you see, I mean, you see there are a lot of different roles in the industry, and you see some people that are, you know, excellent administrators or leaders of companies, and then there's people on the other side that are excellent entrepreneurs and starting and creating these companies, and you probably fall more into the entrepreneurial yeah. side, I assume. Yeah, I like start creating them and coming up with the ideas, and... And usually, you know, try to sell the project, sell the company, yeah. or, I mean, Fortuna's case is a bit of a different story, we can get to that in a while, but for the most part, once a company's of a certain size and you can see it's got its own direction, right. I would rather move on. Take a step back at that point yeah. or cash out Oh, altogether. cash out. So at that point with Fortuna, I left, left it with good management, well-financed with good projects in Venezuela, and all those years I was flying back and forth from Venezuela to, to Canada, to Vancouver, yeah. I'd fly over the Caribbean, and I kept looking down at all those rocks and mountains and yeah. in Central America and I got hungry to be back in that kind of terrain where you could actually climb and you didn't have to slip on the yeah. satellite you, know, <laughs> right. you could actually break a rock so what, so what did that lead to? So I came, I came back to Vancouver and I took over a shell company which at that time was called Mar West Resources and, and went on a tour of, of all the countries in Central America and, and decided on Honduras so I located myself in Honduras so at this point um, you had you had no claims you had, you I had, had no claims, a little bit of money in the company and then money. Just, I put yeah. the only money in the company was the money I put in so okay. I took control by putting a million dollars into the company and took control of the company by doing that. So can I ask a question uh, from my own curiosity? What's the advantage to starting with a public company like that as opposed to doing that, putting a million dollars of your money into a private company and, and acquiring these assets? That I, 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 I have never really assessed the advantage of it. I guess you got liquidity right away. Right. Okay. Right. So as a private company, I mean, I'm not going to go and I'm going to, so I, you know, did I think it was a smart move six months, 12 months later? No, I'm, I mean, living in Venezuela with a, I mean, living in Tegucigalpa in Honduras yeah. with a, you know, a 1976 Land Rover and a Venezuelan girlfriend and saying, <laughs> okay, do I really think I'm going to go find a mine here, Simon? What, you know, yeah. on my weekend moments, I thought I was crazy so but, what what but, was it that brought you down there to honduras well uh, you know the, i went to all the countries down there the central america central american geology is very very interesting i mean i knew one but what did i know about geology at that time i knew about epithermal gold deposits i'd learned quite a bit about them in the in the time of yukon reading about them central america has got lots of volcanoes and hot springs and and roylite domes and all the things that tend yep. to be, be where epithermal gold deposits are focused. So that was that got me the Ring of Fire story. Mm -hmm. So I, I traveled through Central America, visited every country, and found out where there was no competition. Basically, you know, all pa Panama, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Mexico, with lots of people working. Honduras, there was nobody there. Just, there was just no. There was very little yeah. competition in the country. So I chose a place where they got very similar geology, but there was no competition. When I, as I've joked many times to people would ask me, and I said, well, I'm not very good at what I do, so I have to go where the competition is pretty weak. <laughs> so and I went to Honduras. And what did you find there in the end? I made a couple of gold discoveries. Okay. You know, we, we, you know from the research again, there, were, there was data, historic data that you could research in the, in the mining office mm -hmm. in, in Honduras. From the research I did, it became evident that nearly all the gold deposits in Central America were at least spatially related to hot spring centers. Okay. If not, if not directly, but yeah. at least spatially related to them. So, and there were books of companies had been to all of Central America and created in the 70s, created these well-documented, all of the hot spring centers in that part of the world looking for geothermal deposits. So from that, I was able to, number one, had roadmaps to exactly where every hot spring was in, in Honduras mm -hmm. initially. And then also a description of the hot spring. It was a silica centers with them or no silica centers because yep. you need silica if you're going to have a gold yeah. deposit. So I went to those hot springs one by one and, and um, took samples from them and, and found a couple of gold mines because of that. 
So you've, you've had a, a lot of, you've had some good successes and what is it? So when do you decide to walk away from a project? Well, yeah, I think that's just like when you decide to walk away from a certain poker hand. You have yeah. to, you know, I think when you, when you st- first tell us, let me simplify it. You start taking samples on a project. You get there, you take a few samples, you get some good numbers. The more work you do, the better it gets. There's a certain point mm-hmm. where that starts to level off. At that point, you should bring in a joint venture partner. <laughs> right, yeah. doesn't mean the project's dead at all. It just no. means that it needs more science than you can give it because you're not being able to follow it simply. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think what you just described is a trend amongst the very successful people in the industry that they know when to bring in other people or they know when they've done what the most they can do and then they need to take a step out. It's when right. you see these people either falling in love with the project or perhaps falling in love with their idea of their role in that project that sometimes it can stagnate. Sometimes it can stagnate. If you, you know, if you look at the... I've, I've had several discussions with some some very very smart people in our industry about the project generator model. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, don't, I don't really believe in it that well. And, and I think most project generators project generate until they find a project that they want to do themselves. Course, Virginia yeah. Gold. Mm-hmm. That was a project, you know, one of the effective project generators, but they didn't, they didn't, they, the, when they found the, the, the main deposit, they drilled it off themselves. Yeah. Everum is a, is a case example right now. Everum yeah. is a project generator, doing a great job. They found a project now that, are they vending that project? No, they're going to stay with it. Maybe until they think it's going to be, take a too much drilling to understand it. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to. They're not going to. They're not going to generate. They're not going to project. They're not going to join venture right now. I'm, I mean, I'm predicting that's the case. But I'm not. I'm not 100. percent But uh, I know. I mean, I know that's the case. Actually, I, I had a chat with Patty Nichols, and he said, you know, we've been looking for years, and, and this is the one. This there is the you one go. We're gonna I mean, that's all that. The project generator, and as a private company, that's what I. That's what I did. I did yeah. it for quite a few years and made money on it. But you know you, you and because I think what you do as a project generator, and, and they said, you know, going back to this is a private company that I, when I did it, you don't, you you somehow look for projects you can sell, right? You're not particularly looking for projects which you really believe in. Your mindset is, can I market this? Yeah. Not, is this really got a chance of discovery? There's a difference. And so who? Who is buying these projects off? I mean, there's the ones that are the majors where it, the, the amount of work that would need to do yeah, exactly. is you know, cost prohibitive exactly. to a junior. But then there's there's the other group, which are the promoters, uh, which so if you if a project generator sells it to them, they might sell it to the market, right? They might be able to sell it to the market. And, and, and lots of projects that you find early stage warrant work on it. Doesn't, it doesn't mean yeah. you don't believe in the project. You just don't believe in it enough to spend your own money on it. Fair enough. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the company that you are most well known for, uh, which is Fortuna Silver. It's okay. a one point one four billion dollar market cap today. Right. Uh, how? When did that get its start, and what was the genesis of that? Well, uh, um, and I should add, and you are the chairman of that right now. I'm the chairman of that company right now, and and, and one of the founders of it with uh, Jorge Ganosa and Mario Schorlando. Jorge worked with me as a geo. I met Jorge in in Guatemala. Um, what year would have that been? Probably 1999, 1998-99. Just mm-hmm. after I sold my West, I started a company, which I tell how, called Radius. Yep. And I went back into the region again. Jorge was working in, in Guatemala. He'd left college a year or two before um, university, I should say, as a, mining, as a geological engineer. And he'd gone to work in Guatemala because he had a couple of good friends that were Guatemalan that went, he went to school with, and he believed that was an area to explore. And is Jorge Peruvian? Am I right? He's on Peruvian. That? Yes. Yeah. Okay. He's Peruvian, geological engineer. Um, so Jorge worked with me for a couple of years, and basically he would he would he would go into countries first, and like uh, Nicaragua and Haiti, and looking for projects that we would then send the team in afterwards. And he right. saw Jorge would do the initial uh, um, scouting in those countries. Okay. So then he came to me, came to myself and Mario and said, well, you know, his family used to be silver miners from Peru. He believed silver was going to have a, a strong future, share price-wise. Uh, price Would we grubstake him to find a silver mine in Peru? And so grubstaking is where you sort of provide the seed capital that yeah, allows them to, we, to do the initial work. Exactly. 
So you said provide yes. the seed capital so he could go and find a mine that we could we could buy. Right. So you did that. We did that, and, and, that, and that took about a year and a half, two years to come up with the first project, and and we acquired the we purchased a mine from a, um, a famous Peruvian family, the Hotchiles, called Cayoma Mine. It had, they had been mining it. It had been in production for five hundred years. Five hundred years. Five hundred years. Okay. It's been in production. And, and was it a and big open pit these really mine high at this point? Ruby silver veins. Okay, so it's a, it's a narrow underground mine. Yeah, underground? narrow yeah. underground mine. But the, the, some of the initial veins were not narrow, but they were they were high grade mm-hmm. um, underground mines. And five hundred uh, years in, there. Five hundred uh, years yeah. in, all those all those big ruby silver veins had gone, and it had come down to the lead zinc silver veins. Right. There was okay. still silver in them, but the, but it was about fifty percent <clears throat> base metal, fifty percent or less yep. silver. On the income, so the hot chance had shut the mine down, um, just because they didn't want to convert the mill and right. and, 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 and the uh, processing cost would have been exactly. Yeah. So we thought silver was going up, but lead and zinc were looking not too bad. So we we negotiated and purchased the mine. I think we paid six million dollars for it. Okay, and this was in '99. This no, this would have been in this would have been in 2005. 2005. Okay. Yeah. So 2003, I started group taking Hoi. 2005, we acquired the first mine, which was a Kioma mine. I took a, we took a loan from, um, I think it was called Quest, but it would be like Sprott Lending. It was the equivalent, same right. people pretty much, right? Yep. Took a loan from, and from Sprott, made the purchase, and Hoi and the team, he put together, put the mine back in production. And this became Fortuna Silver. This became Fortuna Silver. Started out with a you know the twenty five cent stock, and, yeah, and and a, you know we had a, we had a bunch of hiccups on the way, but I mean luckily I, the the person that came to me for grub taking as a logistics engineer turned out to be a first class the first class person and a first class company CEO. Well, what you know. The- I actually was thinking about that. So Jorge at this time would have been what twenty five or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. He's a Peruvian mining engineer who's looking. Well, for, geological engineer. Sorry, geological engineer. What was it that made you basically want to back him for two years uh, until? Well, he worked. Like for, he worked for me for a while, and yeah. I, you know, from the time we met, we'd had a good relationship. He was very professional from day one, mm-hmm. and, and and very very enthusiastic to get his own play going. And now is Jorge the CEO of Fortuna today? Yes, he's yeah. still running it, and he's and he, with his brother um, Luis Canosa, who is the CFO. Yeah, um, his father came in initially and worked with them um, on Fortuna. So they between him, Jorge, and his father, they put the mine back in production. Yeah. And then some sometime in the next year, um, there was a company called Continuum Resources that was at a project in Mexico that had put a couple of drill holes in. And nope, the market didn't seem to care. I saw those results, and 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 we took a look. Hoye went down and took a look at that and liked what he saw. So we took over Continuo, and that's the San Jose mine right now. Okay, yeah. Which is a huge cash producer for the company. And you also now have a third mine in Argentina. Yeah, right which now, we're so building right? at the moment. Right. So, so we purchased the, the Gold Rock mine. So over the last 13 years, this went from nothing to three mines two operating, one in... One in production. Right. And we, you know, from 2010 until 2017, we didn't raise, we didn't go to the market. Like, we just made money from mining. Yeah. That's how good Jorge and the team he's put together are. It's... We just, we, we raised 100 million to make the purchase of Lindero. Yeah. But... Um, but not to run but, the operations no, or... Yeah. No. You know, it's very interesting, someone that can go from, you know, doing initial scouting missions all over... Latin America to actually running a mine and then running quite a big company. No, running yeah. quite a big company and running it very and running it very professionally. Yeah. I mean, we I think Fortuna has delivered on time and on budget pretty much everything they've done. And now it's they've, worth over a billion dollars. It's worth over a billion dollars. Seven dollars share from price. Here. Yeah. yeah, you know, I think it'd be interesting to provide context for people. You said Jorge is from one of these. It's from a well-known mining family in Peru, yeah, right? Yeah, his family. Were, he, and I you mean, see I think that in his Peru. His great-grandfather was, yeah. a mining, was, a, was a mining um, magnet in Peru. Yeah. I mean, one, of the, one of the wealthier families in the country. And it's I mean, interesting. You, know, you see that there. These There's several of them, right? These families yeah. that generation yeah. after generation, they own mines. They've, their children become geologists and mining engineers and what have you. And they, they've 
built up quite a family business, right? Built up quite a family business. And it sounds like it kind of almost merged a little bit of that with Fortuna by bringing in his brother and his father at some point and sort of that cultural know-how and the ability to get things done in the country. No, Hoy's done a fantastic job. Hoy continues to do a fantastic job with the company. I mean, uh, you know, right now we have a market cap of 1.2 billion. We had, you know, the once we have the Lindero in production in Argentina, that'll double our cash flow, which should double, double. our market cap. Double our cash flow. Yes. Wow. So what? What's the? When's that going to come online? To the, July 2019 is a predicted so date. We're I mean, about a year out. We've been on time on budget, everything that Fortune has done so far. Doing that in Argentina is a bit more challenging than, than, than a loss plus, but you know, well, well, Hacker was challenging as well with the San Jose. But so I, I don't expect that we will be particularly over budget or particularly late. So mm-hmm. I think by, by mid year 2019, we will start producing and, and, and uh, we'll, by the end of that year, we'll have doubled, we'll be doubling our cash flow. And is the the hit the Argentinian currency has taken lately helping? It's, it's along been a little yet? bit of help, but it, it it also makes us a little bit nervous, right? Sure, yeah. A little more chaos in the country, but I think the, I think that the new government's done a great job to date. Um, let's see. So, I mean, there's a lot of people out there right now that'll be listening to this, and a lot of them will be in the industry that are, you know. They're prospectors or would-be prospectors. They're looking for their own projects. They're they're trying to do something similar to what you did earlier on in your career. Is there any advice you'd be able to give a younger geologist or prospector or engineer that's trying to step out of maybe a corporate role or working for other people and, and start looking for their own thing? Um, don't. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a very exciting industry. It's a, I, think it, I, I do think it's a lot tougher now than it was because there was a lot of... There was a lot of low-hanging fruit to be picked when, when you know, when I first yep. went to Honduras, for example. Yeah. You know, there was a, we had good success there. We found a mine in Honduras. We found a mine in or two in in Guatemala, and it, it's a bit, it's a, it is tougher now. Well, there's the internet now too, there's, right? Yeah, there's a, there's the internet now. There's a, lot, there's a lot more access to data right yeah. now. Absolutely. I mean, basically, it, I think I think one thing that I was always focused on success more than money. I mean, money was not my driving point. It was just, I just wanted to, I wanted to achieve something in my life at that, at that yeah. time, you know, and I, and I saw an opportunity and, and the excitement and thrill of, of making, there's not, nothing like the excitement and thrill of, of making something out of nothing, which is what you do by being a prospector. Yeah. You, know, this, you, don't, you don't create the deposit, but you find it, and you, then you go back there, and there's a, there's a mine there that, that, that wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for you. Yeah, so you really need that. I guess that kind of internal compass driving for something like that. I mean, there's you probably know, easier ways to make money. There's probably easier way to make money. Yeah, you but, but, you need, but you need that drive. So yeah, let me need that drive. Just looking at your resume here and the, these list of uh, you know positions you hold now, I noticed something between that and a lot of other very successful entrepreneurs in this space is that a lot of people seem to always be doing four or five things at the same time, and they've yeah, got. And I'm, I'm not sure that I'm not, and I'm not sure that that's a, that's the right way to go. You no. know, I, I've been. I, when initially, I had one company. I, Radius was my second company. I made such a great deal with Radius on a project in Nicaragua with a company called Meridian that I thought Radius was finished. Mm-hmm. So I started Fortuna with Hoy. I mean, I thought Radius was. I thought they were going to drill off a large deposit, and the company was going to be gone. Yeah, it was. It, it looked that good. The project we had and the deal I had with Meridian. So I started Fortuna. I also started a company called Northland, which also became a billion-dollar company. It okay. turned out to be a disaster at some point, because <laughs> I, and I left it. it. It's a long story that I won't get into too much, but basically we picked up an iron deposit in, in Finland and Sweden when yes. the iron prices were high. At some point, we raised $100 million for that company. We had a three-quarters billion-dollar market cap. We did a PEA on the iron deposit, and the PEA said, this thing doesn't work. So what do you do? So what we do is I tried to... By then, we'd put on... You know, I had, a, I had a person running it that I'd put in called Buck Murrow, an American that was that, that was a good mining engineer, I thought, but and I thought he was quite loyal. But we also put on three or four politicians, one from Norway, one from Sweden, one from Finland, to give us some flexible, you know, contact yes. in the government there. When I when it became evident to me that the, the market was too, so now it's 2008, the market's collapsed, we got $100 million in the bank and... And we're spending five million a month on them, on them engineering on the project that the market that the PA said doesn't work. Right. So I tried to get the board to switch into 
gold projects, mm-hmm. right? Because there were companies, actually companies like Heckler knocking on my door saying, you got $100 million, we need a loan kind of thing. Yeah. They right after bought Green Creek. The board wouldn't shift. They, their argument was it's not about the shareholders, it's about the stakeholders. And I'm saying, well, but it was the shareholders that put up the money. So I fought that battle for about six months, and then when I couldn't get the board to change, I walked away. You were off. So the company continued on and finished up losing $2 billion. Losing $2 billion. $2 billion. So it was a billion-dollar company. And then and they then went to the bank and loaned a billion, uh-huh. built the mine, and I think the mine was in production for approximately three months. And it didn't work, obviously. It didn't so. work out at all. How did... I mean, I won't get too much into this, but presumably that PEA was public... It's a public company. Yeah. So, so that was, I yeah. mean, so shareholders and bankers and all the rest had the opportunity to read this PEA that said it's not going to work. Well, the PEA that we had said it was going to cost $1.2 billion to build a mine. And, and you know, they, so by the time, by the time they went to the banks to, to take the loan to build it, it had, it had drifted down to 800 million. It's only going to be an $800 million I build. See. Yeah. So they went to the banks, took the loans. So I, I mean, how they, how they succeeded in that, I'm not really sure, but. At the end of the day, it took 1.3 to build. So that's a lot of money. Anyway, let's, not, let's, let's, yeah. let's park that. So story. instead of that, let's talk about what you're working on today. Okay. Uh, you're involved in several companies, as we we discussed earlier. One of the most interesting ones right now is, and from my opinion, Medgold. Yeah. It's an exploration company. It's got a 35 million dollar market cap. It's focused in Serbia. You're the chairman there. Yeah, and it is fi- actually it's been financed and joint venture with, with Fortuna Silver Mines. Okay. So basically, the you know Medgold was started a, a bunch of geos I know English geologists I knew had some interesting projects in in a company called Medgold in private company called Medgold. They had some projects in in Spain and Portugal. Um, projects looked interesting. The people, the geologists, geologists running it were interesting. So I they asked me to, to help them go public. So I put it together with a shell I had. Mm-hmm. And we listed it and, and went on. The projects in Portugal and Spain didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So at some point, um, on some advice from a geo working for me, we took it into Serbia and began um, doing some work on a certain belt in Serbia. And I think we made a pretty interesting discovery. I mean, it's early stage. Yes. Um, we, had, we spent about a year and a half trying to get it permitted, just through complications on that particular... I don't think Serbia is that hard to work in, just that particular situation. Okay. So we finally succeeded and put the first seven holes in over the last couple of months and every hole hit. And when we stepped out, we, we did big step outs. We had an, an exposure that ran 85 meters of five grand at surface. It looked pretty limited in size, but the geophysics we did said it extended for about a kilometer and a half one yeah. way and about 400 meters north. So we... So when you say at surface, how was this take? Was this like a trench sample? That it was an outcrop. Yeah. It, it was an, an outcrop, outcrop okay, that, was, yeah. that was sitting there. So it had been worked on before by Dundee. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Dundee didn't do the geophysics. They drilled it. And then, you know, if you look at the holes that were... Yeah, and they, they, they put four holes in a mist. We did geophysics and put seven holes in and hit with all seven so far. And you've been getting three to five grams per ton in different Over places. broad intercepts yeah. in a detachment fault. So with the last hole, we six and you know, 30 meters of five grams, 30 meters of three and a half grams, good hits. Mm-hmm. The geophysics says it's got a good chance of, of extending. I mean, you know, you look at the Dundee holes, it's outside the geophysical anomaly. Right. All our holes are just inside of it. The anomaly continues for a kilometer, 1.2 kilometers, I think, and about 400 minutes north-south. Every hole we put in that anomaly so far has hit broad zones of good um, good gold grades with, yes. with lead, zinc, silver. So what's the plan going forward on that to just start define that? Next yeah. week, yeah. Next week, okay, yeah. good. Um, Anything else investors should hear about on that or watch out for? Any milestones? I, I think, I think we're going to keep hitting those kind of grades thicknesses. Obviously, there's, you know, we, we've got to get it. The holes, are, it's not been consistently in that three to five gram range. There's been areas, you know, where we've, we've had it, we've been, been down to sort of half a gram, and I don't think that's going to be mineable. I think mm-hmm. we need to stay in that two gram plus range just because of the sulfide content with it. It's not oxide. Yep. You know, this is not a this is not a heat bleach deposit. This is, but it but it is going to be open pitable, and it is going to be three to five grams. Okay. So if we keep yeah. on with those results, it could be very significant. Yes, certainly. 
So is there anything else you're working on that we should hear about now? Well, our Radius, is, Radius has been my stalwart company. It's very slow. I mean, we, we've got some projects in Radius in... I've got some projects in Radius in Guatemala I've had for a long time. Yep. That is close to the, the Bluestone Cerro Blanco deposit, which okay. I discovered way back when and sold to Golco. Yeah, okay. Um, so we have a big land position there that's very, very prospective. I'm not going to drill it till I see Bluestone, Bluestone get into production because, as you know, Tahoe's... Not in production right now. It's nope. been shut down. Capis Cassidy, which is on a, another deposit I discovered, which was, we might they were mining it. They've also been shut down. So until Bluestone's got that in production, I'm not going to spend any money on that land position right. that I have. We also have a pro- couple of projects in Mexico, one of which is going to get joint ventures shortly to a, to a significant company. Um, and we have two or three projects in Nevada, which I really like, which have gone back to my kind of hot spring yeah. targeting routes and I'm going to be drilling those over the next year or two and Radius is well financed we have between cash and shares in various companies for example Radius owns 10 million shares of Medgold yep. we got you know a, a position in Fortuna it's got a position in Focus so, so there's quite a few synergies and there's quite a few, relationships I, between yeah, these companies. I mean, basically, I grab, stake, I, grab, I put money, my money where my mouth is and the companies I back and the people I back and Radius is if if the, if, the, if I can persuade the board of Radius that they the projects these companies have are worthwhile, they put a bit of money into that because yeah. we have, you know, probably about ten million in cash and shares in Radius, which I'm and my burn rate is very low in the, in the company. Do you get to spend much time in the field yourself these I, days? As much as I can. I mean, yeah. well, okay, let me rephrase that. <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. I, I've just, you know, I got into Nevada quite a bit. I, I've just came back, come back from Serbia a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I like, that's what I like. I like being in the field. I also like being at my home in Pemberton and researching mm-hmm. data as well. So No plans to retire from that anytime soon? I love the business. Why would I retire? Yeah. I mean, you know, you Fair can enough. retire from something you love doing. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't make any sense, does it? So... A lot of people who are listening to this are going to be retail investors at home. They're probably going to find a lot of these things really interesting. When, if you're a retail investor, you know, you're not a mining or geological expert. Is there any advice you have for looking at these earlier stage plays? Uh, you know, I guess you've got, to take, you've got to take a look at the burn rate of the company on a yeah. monthly basis. I mean, I, you know, I've got a company called Crops right now, which is a phosphate deposit in Peru. I'm just going to... I'm going to there's still a lot of luck in whatever we do in our industry. You know, when I got involved, when I got involved in this Peruvian phosphate deposit, the phosphate price was $180 a ton. It did come down from 450 Yep. So I, I looked at the phosphate price and thought, you know what, it seems to be at the bottom. David Cass, who ran the company for me that time, came up with a good explanation why this basin in Peru is a good place to drill up phosphate deposits. So we, we got involved in it. And, you know, we drilled off a probably half a billion tons of, of, of a reasonable grade phosphate close to the surface. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the phosphate price has gone from 180 to 80. Right. So we, right now, phosphate, to, to mine it as a phosphate deposit fertilizer is not economic. I found economic ways to mine it, to use it for industrial purposes. Phosphate is used in many, in many different things. For instance, P4, it's a, it's a, it's a, kind of a dangerous element but it's used in it's known mostly for explosives but it's used in in, in weed killer it's used in fire retardants it's got multiple uses used in engine oil so if i can so, so if you mine it and process it to this you, before, it, you, you can, can you sell get, it at a gets, higher price you get yes it's much higher price yeah. it takes 10 tons of phosphate rock 8 to 10 tons of phosphate rock to make one ton of p4 i see but p4 sells for three thousand dollars a ton and okay. the only producers right now in the, well, there's, there's only one producer in North America and Europe, and that's Monsanto. But they use all of their own production, sure, yeah. so it's locked. So what's the bottleneck there? Is it the processing? of? Uh, yeah, the processing, and you, it, you know, it's a, it's a highly, um, it's, it's not a very well-liked, white phosphorus is not a well-liked, it's used as an explosive. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's got many, many positive uses, it's also got many negative ones. So you, I don't think there's anywhere in North America or Europe you can put a new plant. The mm-hmm. only producers right now are China, Kazakhstan, and North Vietnam. So all of the all of the use in, in all of the companies, big companies that use it in North America and Europe, have to buy it from those three markets. China mark the Chinese market has now been shut out. They put a twenty five percent premium on any phosphate okay. leaving. Yeah. So you get Kazakhstan, North Vietnam. 
So if we could convince a company to put a P, to not just build a mine in Bayava, but build a mine and put a P4 plant, it'd be, it'd be very economic. Mm-hmm. And I think you could permit it there. So we're talking to several of the large companies right now that are involved in this industry, making fire retardants for, for skyscrapers, in, using it in motor oil. Um, I'm not going to name the companies because I've got CA signed, and yeah. that's why I can't put out any news on it, because everybody I've talked in this industry, in the phosphate industry, wants you to keep quiet, because if they know, if, they, if their suppliers know they're going to build a plant themselves, they may stop supplying them. Right. And so, phosphate's quite a tight industry, right? There's only four or five industry. companies that <clears throat> almost control the entire thing, yeah. from what I understand. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, so, so if, if, if I can keep, and there's an if there, if I can keep crops financed for the, for the next year or two, like I have for the last five, at what point it'll be very, very good investment. And you, but the other side is, if I don't, it'll finish up with nothing. Well, you mentioned keeping the burn rate low. Uh, and have you managed to do that at Crofts? For the most part, corporately, yes. Unfortunately, the, the concession we hold in Bayava, we have to mine gypsum. It's a, it's a, it's always a mining, Crofts is a mining company. We mine gypsum and sell it. Yes. We sometimes be able to sell it at a loss. Because, it, you know, if we can sell it locally, we make, we, it costs about $7 a ton for us to mine it. It's just a precipitant on the mm-hmm. surface. If we can sell it locally, which we do sometimes, we make 4 or $5 a ton. If we have to transport it to the port and ship it to Ecuador to sell it, yeah. we lose 3 or $4 a ton. And do you have to keep mining in order to keep your permits? Is that? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. We, have to keep, we, we cannot stop mining. The contract we have for the permit is we have to mine a minimum 80,000 tons a year. Of, of gypsum. I see. So yeah. the holding costs on the crops are probably about three quarters of a million dollars a year for us to hold the concession. Well, this is something I've been interested in, actually, um, phosphates in general. Any any speculation on the price of that? We are at not at an all-time low, but a nearly an all-time low. For, we need it. We need yeah. all, and it's been going down for since 2008. So it's been going down now for 10 yeah. years. Well, I um, talked to Rick Rule about this about a month ago, and he said he was very bullish on phosphates at this point as well. And I mean, not a lot. Of, you don't hear a lot about it these days. You don't hear a lot about it. There's a, and there's been a lot of big transactions lately, which yeah. is usually an indication we're at the bottom of the market. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you try to go finance fertilizers right now, you won't get in the brokerage house doors. I mean, yeah. if I go around to Toronto, New York, London, say I've got a fertilizer project, everybody goes, "Oh, good luck." Fair enough. Fair enough. But so, good thing you've got five other things on the go here. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. But I, and I and I keep financing crops myself and my associates and people that are close to me. So we believe it's it is. There's no doubt. It is a it's a unique asset. It's a large deposit, world class, close to the surface, right beside the ports to ship it out. Can I get somebody interested in this P four operation along with the mine? Let's see. Let's and this see. this comes down to. I mean, a lot of success in the mining industry in general is just playing the cycles right. And playing the cycles right. This and, will and there, probably and be some, a great... there is some luck in that. You know, yeah. well, he came to me and said he thought the silver price was going up. Did he have a magic ball? No. Somebody came to me later on and said they think the phosphate is going to go up. I took a look at it and said, yeah, it probably is. So I got involved. And so far, he's been... I've been like dragging a sack up a hill for the last five years. But someday know. it will. And someday it will. If yeah. crops is still around and going strong then, then it'll be a, a it'll, very different story, I guess. That's right. No, at, you know, at $150 a ton, crops would generate hundreds of millions of dollars from the deposit we have there. All right. For 100 years. Now, you know, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a small deposit. This is a world-class deposit. So anyway, that's, that's, that's crops. Very high risk, very long-term investment. And, um, and another company that I'm chairman of, I'm grub, I grub staked um, and I have a company called Jeremy, a guy called Jeremy Crozer running a company called Volcanic in Guinea. Okay. We, got a, we picked up a great project in Guinea. We've had a very, very complicated year trying to re-permit the area. When, when I took the company on, I was informed by the people that took it from that the, the, the Guinean management that was in place were very, very good and very reliable. Yes. Turned out not to be the case. <laughs> So we've, we've been spent, spending the last year trying to replace them. And I think we've been, I think we finally have been successful. I think in the next month, the permits on the projects we have, the Mandiana projects, will get reissued. And Jeremy, who's a very, very good geo with a very, very good team and one hardworking guy, I think that will get uh, 
the permits will get reissued and will be up and running again. And this is volcanic gold mines. So what stage is that at? Is this early exploration? Has drilling no, started? No, it's, it's got a resource of about half a million ounces okay. drilled off on, on the Mandiana North. The Mandiana South, the second half of the project that we haven't drilled yet, has got artisanal miners all over the place. It, 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 it looks very, very promising. But we have to get the permit and get drilling again. Fair enough. So today we've spoken about Fortuna Silver, Med Gold Resources, volcanic gold mines and crops as well i think we touched on radius gold as well we touched on radius which is yeah so if if listeners have any interest in learning more about what you're working on anywhere in particular you'd suggest they look or just go to the website just go to the website of the company or the website of gold group and we'll put those in the show notes so okay thank you very much for joining us today simon no thank you very much for the for the time all right take care appreciate it Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.